0: We've been talking in this uh, war that has been forced upon Israel. We're now over two weeks, like day 17, um, of this uh, Israel's battle against uh, um, just hideous Hamas terrorism uh, that is the the worst, brought on the worst single day of Jewish uh, bloodshed Uh, innocent Jewish lives since the Holocaust. It touched the raw nerve of the Holocaust for the Jewish people and for those who have embraced them, like you and I. Praise the Lord. And we've been talking about how really at heart this is a spiritual battle, and we're battling the spirit of Amalek. And I want to uh, just uh, offer a teaching this morning. We'll release it for uh, public consumption, about exactly what we're facing here, because this current conflict, uh, October 7, and the atrocities committed then, just exposed once again, if it wasn't already clear, that this is not uh, uh, a dispute over borders and where should a Palestinian state be. This is a religious war, it is a jihad. Uh, and Hamas even says so very clearly and bluntly, they're trying to incite the whole world, using the Palestinian cause, to incite the whole world, to the the Muslim world, to a global jihad, Uh, and they call this operation the Al-Aqsa Storm. Of course, Al-Aqsa is a reference to the Grey Dome Mosque at the south end of the Temple Mount, But at some point, they changed the status quo. Everyone talks about how Israel's changing the status quo. They changed the status quo a few decades ago and declared the whole Temple Mount Mount compound one mosque, a place of prayer, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, including the Dome of the Rock. And uh, of course, there's no threat to it. No one's touching it this whole time. Uh, they're you know, it's been safe, but you know, they've started all this bloodshed and mayhem where Gaza, uh, the northern half of Gaza, especially, is getting leveled right now. Uh, all because they're they, you know, have this aspiration they want to control the Al Aqsa Mosque and the Temple Mount, and uh, it is out of a uh, Islam's rival claim to this land as once part of the house of uh, Islam. It was once under Sharia law, therefore you can't ever have it under any other. You can't certainly have it under Jewish sovereignty and their rival claim to Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. And as we look at this and try and understand a little better the spirit of Amalek, um, I ran across a very excellent YouTube video Uh, A few months ago, I know Nicole Yoder, uh, she recommended something by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. And as I started looking at some of his uh, YouTube videos, he was, of course, the chief rabbi of the United Kingdom and a member of the House of Lords. He's Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. He passed away a, a year or so ago. Um, but uh, they were uh, very wrong, the Jewish community in the UK, not to share him with the rest of us because he was a very sharp, and I'd say had spiritual insights into the Word of God that even we as Christians could uh, uh, benefit from. But he has a YouTube video called The Battle of the Book. He became. Uh, you know, they built a new Israel library here, big, beautiful place. It's their national library. And as they were raising funds, they would bring him in as like their main featured guest speaker each time and hold fundraisers. And he gave amazing, uh, lectures there. And one of them recorded for YouTube battle of the, the battle of the book. I'll share the link with everyone after we're done, um, But he he was talking about how after um, the Hundred Years War, when the Reformation came along and, you know, a lot of Protestants, they broke away from uh, the Catholic Church, that you had about a hundred years. There was sort of within, it, I believe, a 30 years war that we're wondering what to call this war now, uh, you know. I guess after you're finished, you call it the Hundred Years' War. Sometimes you can't name it till it's finished. But it was a hundred years of of fighting between Catholics and Protestants, of religious warfare. And some of the philosophers, as it finally died down and petered out enough bloodshed, some of the philosophers of, of those days, like Locke, Rousseau, Milton, Spinoza, they, they were... Uh, wondering, you know, what is the root of all this religious violence? And they came, they s- s- came to the conclusion that it, 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 the Bible itself is a dangerous text. And that is what is inspiring all of this. And we have to take power away from the church, and give it exclusively to the state and have this separation of church and state. And this is where we get it, whether it's in Europe, uh, first in, in France and, and the French revolution, the American revolution and how our institutions have developed from them, from then. Uh, but it was the, the question, well, what is the root of of violence and especially religious violence? And, uh, Rabbi Sachs talked about how Sigmund Freud, uh, he concluded that it was this um, father-son jealousy, the Oedipus uh, complex. Um, But they concluded no, and Rabbi Sachs, he made a very good case in his video that the root of violence is sibling rivalry. Now, you might have, if a father has two sons, and he likes one more than the other, the other one might resent it and resent his father and all, but his, his real rivalry is with his brother. And you know, there was this effort to just separate people from the Bible. It was dangerous. And this was the source of, of all this violence. And but what we have to to say is look. Is it the text itself that's dangerous, or is it how we interpret it, how we handle it, that turns us to violence and rivalries and hostility and animosity towards each other? But it is true. You, the the Jewish people, on the morning this started, on Simhat Torah, um, what's the other name f- for it, the it's when they start reading the Bible for the Torah, the first five books of Moses again from Genesis 1-1. And if you go through the book of Genesis, if there is a recurring theme in it, it is sibling rivalry, one right after the other. The first religious war was What? There you go. It was a jealousy over someone who had offered a better sacrifice to God. It's as if a picture of your religion you you think you know God accepted it but my worship no and he slew his own brother. So from the very start we you know we get a warning about how we approach God, and and not being jealous of of others. If you've if you've found the way to please Him, be happy with it. Hallelujah. But then you have, of course, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers. You also have sisters in the act the sisters act rachel and leah i mean it's just this recurring theme that that really centers on who gets the birthright from abraham of world redemption who is god going to use to bring the redeemer who gets that blessing You know, over and over you wonder why it should have been in their culture, the firstborn, the firstborn. And yet every time, you know, is it Isaac, he he, uh, switches his hands because it's Jacob that gets it and not Esau. And Esau didn't value the birthright and sold it for a mess of pottage and then Isaac deceived his father to get the blessing it's both the birthright and the blessing that blessing of the firstborn and of course the rivalry between Sarah and uh, Hagar and, and as we read the text um, what Rabbi Sachs pointed out and it was uh it's a very interesting very powerful thought but as we read these stories when you read about the jealousy between sarah and hagar hagar mocking her sarah sends her out uh you know the lord finds her by a spring of water and says go back and serve her and uh then a second time once uh Isaac is born, the child of promise, that the Redeemer will come through him. It's, uh, and it's also the birthright of the land, we have to point this out. But once Isaac is born, you know, and like Abraham becomes the heir of the, the cosmos, it says in the New Testament, the promise of world redemption through him and the Redeemer through him and the land and all these promises, once he's born uh Ishmael and, and Hagar, they're a little jealous and start mocking. And so Sarah, again, get rid of her. And she flees out into the wilderness and is by a, uh, you know, is, uh, there's dying. Her water's running out. It says Abraham gave her some bread and some water. <laughs> and he didn't want to do it. He was reluctant, but he gave her bread and water and sent her out. And she winds up sitting under a tree with her th- son, it says, about a, a, an arrow's length, you know, as far as you can shoot an arrow away, watching him die of dehydration. And when you read the story, of course, you, you know, you and I as, as Christians, as believers, we say, yes, rightly so. Isaac is the child of promise he was a miracle birth but the writer of the narrative actually wants you to have sympathy and compassion for Hagar and Ishmael and you do if you have a heart you say gosh this is this is bad and the angel of the lord comes along she sees it well and and things turn out different, and they're, they're give, Ishmael is given promises. He gets a blessing. And at the end of the story, it says that when Abraham died, Isaac and Ishmael came together and buried their father. You have the story of uh, um, Jacob and Esau, And Esau's already sold his birthright, but now he's lost the blessing and he finds out about it. And, you know, you and I say, of course Jacob gets the birthright and the blessing. It's the election of God, even though he's second born, came out of that womb, you know. we read the story how Esau, when he realized he had even lost the blessing, He goes and he's weeping in anguish before his father. Father, bless me. And Isaac, it says he is trembling and feels so, so sad for his son. He's trembling. You know, Abraham is offering his son Isaac on the altar and it doesn't, tell you anything about what he's going through you you're able to try and discern that yourself but here the writer gives you you know so such a district description of the scene that you have compassion it is intentional to give you compassion for the one who lost it but in the end Jacob and Esau reconcile. It says it was, you know, A. Jacob had wrestled all night. He divided his camp. He was worried about his wives and children. And he, you know, he, but it was it was Esau who ran to him, embraced him, and kissed him with tears. And all these stories in Genesis, they all... You know, especially between these sons, these rival sons, they all end up in reconciliation, except one. Except yeah. one. It was the grandson of Esau, Amalek, who could never accept that he had lost what would have eventually been his, or his, his line of the family, had lost it to Jacob. And this is the root of God's war with Amalek and the spirit of Amalek. Someone did not accept it, was jealous, was envious, and kept that desire, that fervent heat for revenge alive. Song of Solomon 8:6. Says jealousy is as cruel as the grave, and it burns with a most vehement fire. And so we see this thread running through Scripture of this spirit of Amalek that his descendants, uh, you'll find it in Genesis 36, 12, where it gives the the, uh, descendants of Esau and in verse 12, it mentions Amalek. Exodus 17, Israel is coming out of, uh, from the uh, deliverance from Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea. They're almost to Sinai at Rephidim. They get water, uh, thank God, but they were thirsty. They were stragglers. Uh, you know, They were in the desert, kind of like Ishmael, thirsty. And God gave them water, but it says, Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. It was probably one of these uh, wells or stops along the route from uh, Sinai over here to the land and over to Petra in Jordan, where the caravans, they, they, you'd go about a day's journey and rest, And and but it, they came to Rephidim, and all the scholars... Say Amalek lived in some way off location, had heard what had happened in Egypt, and they came a long way in order to exact revenge on Israel. Okay, God's delivered them, but let's see. And you don't have it in Exodus 17. It's described a little more in Deuteronomy 25, but in Exodus 17, this is when Amalek comes to make war. Joshua is told to go take some men and fight them in battle. And Moses stands on a hill with the rod of God and Aaron and Hur holding his hands. And as long as they hold hands, their hands up, Israel prevails when they let him down. Amalek prevails and they held him up long enough for Israel to prevail. And in the aftermath, the Lord said to Moses, uh, Exodus 17, 14, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. We were having dinner on uh, Friday, and uh, Joe and I were sort of discussing this, and it's, it's like, you know, you're asking, well, God said I'll blot out Amalek. No, it's I'll blot out the remembrance of Amalek, it's uh, it's the Zikaron, the root in Hebrews is uh, Zekeir or something. It's it's about memory. I will utterly blot out the remembrance, God says, of Amalek from under heaven. And in verse sixteen, because the Lord has sworn, he calls the place uh, um, the Lord is my banner, is that uh, Jehovah Nisi, and. It says, because the Lord has sworn, it's a vow by God, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. There's something that drove these Amalekites to leave their place and go all the way across the desert to attack this people. And because of God's election over them, I think God realized there will be jealousies, there will be jealous, envious, rival claims, and I'm gonna have to fight this battle one generation after another. And whatever is stirring them up, you gotta blot it out because it's going to arise. The Jewish people say in every generation, there is an Amalek who rises Against us. And it is the word of God. God says, I will have war with Amalek. I tell you what we're fighting now. And as Christians out there, they're wondering, why should we, you know, take sides? We got to be even handed. God is at war with this spirit today. today. Whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Doesn't mean we have to go kill, but we better stand with the Lord, like, like, uh, you know, Joshua and the angel. Uh, whose side are you on? I'm on the Lord's side. Okay? Deuteronomy tells you a little more. Uh, Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19, it's just sort of a miscellaneous little passage in the midst of a bunch of laws, but it's a command to remember Am- what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt how he met you on the way, attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers of your rear. Remember, they were out without water, and people were thirsty and dragging. It says, when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God, the God of the Bible, the creator God. Therefore, it shall be when your the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies all around the land which the Lord... Your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance. This is the inheritance of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You, you, God says in Exodus 17, I will blot out the remembrance of Amalek. He says to Israel, a command, you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. It's a command that Israel, every generation of Jews has to prepare for something arising and being prepared for it because of god's election over them and this thread of the spirit of amalek continues through scripture first samuel 15 the prophet samuel king Saul, he's been appointed he disobeys he did not kill king agog who was an amalekite king he was from the royal house of amalek and saul did not uh kill him And because of his disobedience, he lost the throne. Amen. And David became king. 1 Samuel 30, David, uh, he's not quite king yet, but he's sort of on the run down near Gaza. Ziklag is on Wadi Basur or uh, Wadi Gharar, where even Abraham camped. It's the Wadi where Israel right now is telling all the civilians in Gaza to move south of this Wadi. It's right about in the very middle of the Gaza Strip, just below where our christian embassy nature park about a kilometer or so south of that and uh, but ziklag was further upstream on this wadi and of course the amalekites come and raid his camp and take their wives and all their goods and david is discouraged but he encourages himself in the lord and he inquires of the lord shall i pursue this enemy and the lord says pursue overtake and rescue." And we're believing for this even now that hostages will be rescued, but it's this Amalek still uh, attacking Israel in later generations. And then this whole story of Esther. Uh, Mordecai was from the tribe of Benjamin, which was the tribe of Saul. He was probably from Saul's house. They you know, would have been king, but he's an Israelite and he's a descendant of Saul. And Haman, in the story of Esther, he is uh, an Agagite, which means he is a descendant of this king Agag that Saul failed to kill and Samuel had to kill him, meaning he is an Amalekite and from the royal house of the Amalekites. So this is that ancient rivalry between Israel and Amalek this son of Esau who never accepted the primary election and the birthright and the land and the promise of world redemption that that went to uh, uh, Jacob, never accepted it showing up in the book of Esther. And what I'd say about that, we see plays and movies uh, about the story of Esther. It's very beautiful. She's you know a beauty queen wins a beauty contest gonna be you know married to the king and and uh, you know you get this picture of dainty uh, little princess and waiting to be queen and uh, but she fasts and she prays and we're doing Esther fast and it's great inspiration for us but at the end of the day when when the king finally hears her, her fasting works, she got her audience with the king. She tells him the plot that Haman has hatched against the people. And it's the law of the Medes and Persians. is already said the Jews have to be destroyed. You cannot negate it. But she says, well, let us be able to defend ourselves. I mean, the, the right of self-defense, what other nation in the world has to fight for the right of self-defense like Israel? But she says, let us defend ourselves. Let us arm ourselves and defend ourselves, men. Mm. And the king allows it. And after a day of where they're prevailing and there's a lot of slaughter against the enemy that's rising up against them, after a day of this, she goes back into the king. He says, what would you have? She gets a second chance. And here's this dainty little beautiful queen. She says, give us another day. You don't see that in the movies, and the plays. You don't really see the bloodshed. But even with the fasting and praying, the Jews still had to fight. They still had to fight. And little Esther said, give us another, give us a time to finish off this enemy in this generation. And this spirit of Amalek is a spirit of envy and animosity towards Israel, where he was a grandson of Esau who never accepted the loss of the birthright and the blessing. It refuses to accept the election of God over Israel, their unique standing and blessing uh, in God's purposes for world redemption, and their inheritance of the land of Israel. You can read the text, and Esau gets a blessing, and you don't have to come away from the text jealous, okay? But here's a grandson that never accepted it, and that spirit is still around. And it attached itself to many peoples and nations over time, the Persians, the Greeks. I mean, Daniel's fasting, he's fighting the prince of Persia, and then he has to fight the prince of Greece. And you know, the Greeks did sports in the nude, and, and Israel th- thought this was, you know, abomination. And the Romans did business in the nude at the baths, and this was horrible to the Jews. And And even the Greeks and the Romans had a dose of this spirit, and, and the two Jewish uprisings were to try and throw off the suppression of the Romans against them. And eventually the spirit of Amalek attached itself to the church. Amen? Where even by the second or third century, you had this replacement theology and supersessionism that said the church had replaced Israel as God's redemptive agent in the world. We were the elect now. We had all the promises. And Israel was rejected. There's a spirit of jealousy and a bad reading of the text, a mishandling of the Word of God. It's not the text that's dangerous. It's how we handle it and interpret it and apply it. And it became, uh, turned into this long history of not just Christian anti-Semitism, violent anti-Semitism against the Jews, you know, trying to, thinking you were doing God's work to oppress them and persecute them and burn their holy books and, and even slaughter them and convert and die and pogroms and inquisitions right up to the Holocaust. Even in the New Testament, you know, the Jerusalem above is Sarah, the Jerusalem below is Hagar. Even Paul says some things that were used to reinforce this. But Paul never negated that primary, original election of God over Israel. How do you handle it? The church is chosen, is elect. You and I are elect. But not to the negation of God's enduring election over Israel. He can juggle two two balls at a time. He can love us both and use both at the same time when you interpret the text to their exclusion, you're in heresy. And I say that to the whole Christian world. When you say God has, that Israel has lost its election before God, you're in heresy. Donald Lewis, in his book, A Short Christian History of Zionism, he calls this a secondary election a secondary election, that we accept God's original and primary election over Israel, and we also understand and embrace that God has a calling over our lives, an election. And it's not to the exclusion of them, but we respect and esteem how God has used them, even in their sufferings, for our sake. And this is what Paul taught. Now, Islam, the spirit of Amalek, attached itself to Islam in a very hideous way that it has been there from the very beginning. And this is what we need to understand to understand what's going on now. Islam uh, originated uh, first as a rival to Christianity. About half of the Arabian Peninsula were already Christians by around the uh, 7th century, 600s, when Muhammad comes along. And his first goal in coming up with this new religion was to offer a a, a rival religion to Christianity that would be centered around this uh, uh, idol worship center and big trade markets. He was a camel trader on caravans, and, and he wanted all the money from all the trade. And he actually had Jewish tutors who helped him you know sort of make some arguments against christianity but later he turned on the jews himself and so the quran has words of respect for the people of the book and even even zionist scriptures enter the land oh people uh, that god promised you but it also says they're sons of monkeys and pigs Mm -hmm. and and horrible things about the jews and what um Muhammad said, he he insisted that Allah, we won't call that the same thing as the God of the the Bible, the creator God who had done fight himself with Israel, but Allah, his God, he actually, the birthright did go to Ishmael. And that's why Islam even has a feast. I think it's the Id al-Fatir. It's one of their feasts that, it's a feast on the offering of Ishmael by I, by Abraham. It's a whole feast to celebrate it. So, you know, it's the spirit of Amalek says, no, it, it was Ishmael who got the birthright. It was Ishmael who got the birthright. See, it's it's another type of replacement theology from the start. And... But Muhammad said that the Jews falsified the text, they falsified the Torah to say it, it was Isaac, and that the revelation he was receiving in the Quran was given by God to correct, to sort of go back, and it's sort of backfill of history, as historic revisionism, but he says, no, the original Ishmael got the birthright, not Isaac but the Jews falsified their scriptures, and so they're, they're rejected, they're wrong. And the Christians also falsified certain things in the New Testament, there's no time to go into it, Jesus wasn't really crucified, and things like this. Total negation of the Christian faith. We, you can't tolerate it for a second, these teachings of Islam concerning uh, Christianity in the New Testament. But Islam actually tells the Arab peoples that they are really the chosen people. You know, even if uh, our brother uh, Umar Melinde and our brother from, uh, um, uh, was it, born in Timbuktu, Abdu Maiga, they spoke other languages. They were Africans, but they were both studying to be imams, and they were memorizing the Quran only 150 chapters or so, uh, and memorizing it. But you have, you can only read it and memorize it in Arabic. All these other Muslims around the world have to learn it in Arabic. You really can't translate it to another language. Why? Because the Arab people, they're really the chosen people. I kid you not. It elevates them to where we really have the birthright, including the right to the land. Spirit of jealousy from the very start of Islam. Muslims are taught they follow a superior revelation of all in the Quran, which means they are a superior people. There's a whole big uh, three-book series by Ba'i Orr, this uh, scholar, Egyptian-Jewish scholar. She uh, um, wound up living in Switzerland, brilliant, but talking about demitude, the second-class citizenship of Christian and Jewish minorities under Muslim domination. And she really probably is the best scholar on this, uh, the supremacy of, of Islam. And Islam also borrows heavily from biblical prophetic passages Uh, But it twists them and says, yes, there is an end-time battle over Jerusalem, just like the Hebrew and Christian scriptures say. But it's, it's the Muslims who will prevail and conquer the world, and they believe it. This is even in the charter of Hamas, and it is what is driving them. They say the Jews, they're evil. It's conspiracy theory. They're out to control the world to control a world that it is our destiny to control. You see that, that replacement and that envis, uh, envy. The Hamas charter insists that the dispute between Israel and the Palestinians is a religious war, uh, that Jews seek to control the world, which is the rightful destiny of Muslims only, and thus they are uh, an implacable enemy and rival. And the Charter quotes the Quranic Hadith, it's like Islamic eschatology, that there will be perpetual war between Muslims and Jews until Judgment Day. When a tribe of Muslims, meaning the Palestinians, defeat a tribe of Jews, retake Jerusalem, whether you're Sunni or Shiite, the Ayatollah Khomeini who founded the Islamic Revolution in 1979 in Iran, this was the, probably the teaching that roused all the Muslim, Shiite Muslims to his side. The, this promise of world conquest, if you just follow me, and once we take Jerusalem, it's a sign from Allah that he's with us and we can take the whole world and the only ones standing between this, because, you know, the Russians, the Chinese, all, everyone who's cooperating, they don't, they don't really, they're stupid. They do not realize what is inspiring and inciting this hatred against Israel. They don't realize that, that they're a target too. And the only thing really standing between them and this world conquest is first Israel and then the Christian world. First the Saturday people and then the Sunday people. And when they say there will be perpetual war between Muslims and Jews, you have to go back to Exodus 17 where the Lord himself says the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Perpetual war. We're not talking about a hundred years war. We're talking about Thousands of, of years. But God's going to triumph. We're going to see the victory. He will. We are standing here. I want to conclude. You and I are standing here. This ministry was birthed and is founded on a principle that our ancestors in the Christian faith got so infected with the spirit of Amalek that they committed great atrocities against the Jewish people, and what they did was wrong, and God by his grace has opened our eyes that we know and feel and embrace the election of God over us, but also see his enduring election over Israel. So we're no longer jealous. In fact, we're to provoke them to jealousy with our kindness, and our answered prayers. And within Islam, there are, people have a choice. In every generation, that spirit arises. And people have a choice. And I tell you, the, this region, the Arab people, were, this war was started because millions and their, of Arab people and their rulers were finally coming to accept Israel, the Jewish people's rightful place in this area. They were saying no to the spirit. And right now, the Palestinian flag, however just their cause, it has become the symbol of global jihad. And free Palestine is a euphemism for kill the Jews. Sorry. Sorry. And it is marching in a lot of cities in Europe, in America, and elsewhere. But I think, you know, you do the polls, 80% of Americans are standing with Israel in this battle. Whereas a couple weeks ago, before the war, it was down around 60%. It was going down. And even in Israel, the latest data that Israeli Arabs, that 54% of them, believe the end result of this war should be the elimination of Hamas, the majority of Israeli Arabs say, whether it's elimination or disarm them or whatever, they don't want Hamas. They saw that ugliness that ISIS and Al-Qaeda had shown us, showing up in Hamas in the name of the Palestinian cause, and they are disgusted by it. So you have a choice. And our ministry has to tell the Arab world our ancestors were wrong when they did it, when they gave over to the spirit of Himalek, gave themselves over to it. And what is happening now is wrong. And by the grace of God, help Israel through this.